Let's pray together. Father, we, we do pray, Lord, for our hearts to be open to receive from you. And Lord, uh, we don't want to be just complacent in our walks with you. We want to continually be challenged, Lord, to hear your voice, to apply your word, uh, to walk in that newness of life, Lord, that you use your word to uh, kind of speak into and define for us. And so we come open, ready to receive from you. And we pray that you administer, Lord, your truth, as you have done so many times before and as we're sure you'll do today. So bless your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are going to pick up today, as you can see on the screen there, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Uh, there's kind of two sections here uh, that we're going to look at, 17 to 19 and 20 and 21. So let me read 17 to 19. It says, now, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, obviously, here we are. We're jumping into verse 17. There's obviously a context to this particular passage, but it's not so much the couple of verses that come right before it. The context for this passage actually goes all the way back to verse 3. And I'll remind you, I'll remind you that beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul, there he began to address, again, those false teachers and the false teachings. So that, that's been a recurring theme throughout this book, false teachers and false teachings. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, Paul then began to unpack a little bit of the motivating factors of these false teachers. And he, he gave us three of them. One of them was the idea of greed and the idea of covetousness. And so that led Paul into this discussion of money and finances and greed and selfishness and so on. He then diverted off from that, and now he's coming back really to money and finances and, the, and all of that. And so Paul said this. This was... In verse 5, he said, well, I'll read verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now notice he says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so these false teachers that Paul has been coming back to again and again in the book, they were misusing God's word for personal gain. They were greedy, they were selfish, they were covetous, and they, were, they saw godliness as a means of gain. As we said at that point, that is not the purpose of godliness in our lives. And that's not the reason why we should be pursuing God so that we could become more like God, is just so that we can get gain. Now, I said this at the time, uh, and it's obviously it remains true. It, that doesn't mean that Paul was against godliness, obviously. He's not, he's not critiquing that. And it didn't mean that he was against gain either. He'll say in verse 6 of the very next verse, he'll say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So he, he doesn't have a problem with gain necessarily, and he doesn't have a problem with godliness. He would add in that verse, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with these, all the basics, with these we will be content. And so as we pointed out at the time, the issue is not the money that a person has. That's not the issue that Paul is getting at here. He's not, he's not talking about their gain and he wants to deal with that necessarily. The issue that Paul wanted to address was a person's hard attitude toward the resources that they do have. He wanted us to guard our hard attitude because those false teachers were so in love with money, they were willing to do anything to get money, even misrepresenting God to, to those that they came into contact with. And so that's really Paul's concern is a person's hard attitude toward their money. That's why he'll go on to say in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And I'll say this verse that a lot of people misquote, but he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. All right, so today we are in verse 17. It, it's going to begin uh, by, uh, with the phrase, like, as for the rich. It's going to talk about money again here. The context goes back to those verses that I just drew your attention to. And a person might conclude, at, after reading verses 3 through 10, might conclude that Paul's uh, admonition to us is that we should put all money out of our lives. We shouldn't get caught up in money. We shouldn't be snagged by money or ensnared by money. And that the people that are the most godliness are those that are poor or those that have taken a vow of poverty. That is not where Paul is going. Again, it's not about the money. It's about your hard attitude toward the resources that you have. Paul said in verse 9, what he, I should say, what he was hoping they could avoid was the snare of resources. And they can get us, can't they? When you had nothing, when you were young or whatever, maybe, and you had nothing, and you just sort of lived and you were content. And some of us are older and we have nothing. Okay, I got gotcha. you, <laughs> or whatever. But as you begin to get a few more resources, you can get sucked in, and it grabs a hold of you, and you want some more, and you want some more, and you want some more, and Paul knew that. And so now as he comes to verse 17, what we discover is that this, the conclusion, give it all away, is not the conclusion Paul wanted to reach. So Paul gave a brief exhortation to Timothy, that's verses 11 to 16, there, the point of it, you may remember, was Timothy, not so you, I think is, is how it's worded in some of the languages, um, or some of the versions of the Bible. Don't be like the false teachers, Timothy. You're doing so well. Don't get caught up in greed. Don't get caught up in covetousness. Not so you. Now he's going to come back to a discussion of the rich and their resources. Now look at, look at verse 9. He said there, but those who desire to be rich. as people who don't have the money that want the money, right? Look at now verse 17. As for the rich. These are the people that have the money, you see? And so it's still the topic of resources and finances, but now he's going to be addressing those that already have those resources. He's shifted from those that want it to those that actually have it. Now, it's interesting. Throughout church history, there have been sex or segments of the Christian faith that have communicated, that have taught that the most godly among us 
are those that have taken that vow of poverty, that they don't have anything, they put it all aside because they're fixed on heaven, they're not fixed on the things of the earth. And so there has been teaching, it resurfaces in different places, but there has been teaching that if you really want to be godly, give it all away. That's not where Paul is going. It sounds noble, right? Wow, you're so committed. It sounds noble, but that's not what Paul is teaching. Paul's not teaching we have to give it all away. The possession of wealth and having an, abund an abundance of resources so that you can begin to make choices what you do with your resources, according to the scripture, that's not sinful. And I think it's, a, it's important for us to understand it. It, doesn't have to, it shouldn't be our number one pursuit. But in and of itself, having those things is not sinful. Because if it were, then Paul would have said so here. You see, I, I'm, I rewrote the verse here. If, if Paul was saying money is sinful and shouldn't have it, then the verse would have read something like this. Now, as for the rich in this present age, get your act together and get rid of your assets as soon as possible so that you will no longer be in sin. This would have been the place to say that, right? And obviously he doesn't. That's not what Paul goes on to say. Instead, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't say, get rid of it. He says, have the right attitude if you have it. And this is important. Rather than telling them to get rid of the resources, he instead tells them how to manage themselves while in possession of those resources. So the Christian faith is not opposed to believers being wealthy or rich. But it does have a lot to say about believers having the right attitude toward those riches. Verse 17, it provides a very important balance to the things Paul said earlier in the chapter. And I think that's one thing I love about the scripture is how balanced it, it so often is. Paul doesn't condemn those whom God has entrusted re with resources, but he does call them to exercise uh, a proper stewardship. That's a term maybe you're not as familiar with, a manager. It's not yours. You've been placed in charge of it, in control of it, but it belongs to another, the owner, in this case, God. And we are stewards or we are managers. Paul's going to give three instructions here in verse 17. He says, as for the rich, charge them not to be haughty. That means proud. He says, as for the rich, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And then in verse 18, he says, as for the rich, charge them to be rich in good works, generous, and ready to share. Now, the reality is, every one of us here in America, we are probably wealthier than most people that have lived on the earth or most people that live on the earth now. And so we qualify uh, here in this room. Almost every one of us probably qualifies as rich or wealthy. So these are instructions for you and I. Not to be haughty. Here, look it up again. Not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches and to be rich in good works generous, and ready to share. Let's kind of go through each one of those uh, little by little. As I said a couple of weeks ago, you can't take it with you. Right? No U-Hauls, no trailing hearses, right? You can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. 
And the scripture talks about rewards and things like that in heaven. Uh, and much of how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, will determine what those rewards are. We're not talking about buying your way into heaven, but you can use the resources you have now in order to earn rewards for heaven. And so we can't take it with us, but we can send it forward. The first thing Paul says is uh, to charge his congregation, Timothy is to charge his congregation that they not allow themselves to become haughty, proud, because of their riches. Haughty has been defined as to cherish high thoughts toward oneself. Doesn't that sound awful? Yeah, I am pretty good. Uh, haughty, to cherish high thoughts towards oneself. It's what you see again and again in the scripture as pride. Now, there's a lot of things that can lead us uh, to allow pride to take up residence in our hearts. And so if you have a superior education to others, that could cause you to become proud. If you're intellect, if you just have a sharp mind and you can really uh, you know, put others in their place, that can cause you to become proud. You, maybe you have a really great personality. These are my struggles, folks, uh, that I'm dealing with here. But you have you know, great personality, and you can fit with anybody, and you can connect, and man, you can just work a room and so on. That may cause you to think you're better than other people, your good looks, whatever it might be. Well, another one of those that really contributes toward this is our resources, our, our money, our finances, whatever it might be. And suddenly we begin to think that we are better than other people because we perhaps uh, possess more than those other people. Pride is a constant danger for those that have this world's riches. Because when we have wealth, there's a tendency to become less dependent on God and others. I don't need to cry out to God for those things anymore because I got money in my bank account. And I don't need to have to look to other people to help me with this because I got money in my bank account. And so I, I used this example before, but the Christian that has a clunker for a car has a very good prayer life. Because every time they get in that car, Lord, please, <laughs> this time. You know, but then you go you get yourself a nice brand new car and it starts up, no problem. You don't even think about praying when you sit down in the driver's seat any longer. When we have everything that we need, a sense of self-sufficiency begins to enter in. And it's just a little bit away, that self-sufficiency from independence. And we become independent from God. And so, and that's, that's the result of pride. Anyone, that, any created being that thinks they can be independent from God, it's like, oh my gosh, like I am off the mark here if I think that is the case. But it, our riches can cause that to become the case. And when we are less and less reliant upon him, and more and more reliant upon ourselves or our bank accounts before long, we begin to see ourselves as self-made men and women. Look at me, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And then what do we begin to do to the person that's a little bit lower down on the level us? We look at them and we convince ourselves if they would just work a little bit harder, they would be where I am. This is how I got here. And if they were a little smarter or a little this or a little that, they would be able to get to this place as well. It's pride. And so Tim, Paul's admonition, his charge to Timothy is, look, you spend, you talk to the church and let them know they can't be haughty. And they have to keep going to God and say, Lord, take this pride out of my life, Lord. I confess it as such. Lord, you know my heart attitude is wrong. I give it to you. 
pride. You remember King, ba- uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? This is the book of Daniel. Some of you may not be familiar with the book. It's an Old Testament book. It's a prophecy. And in there, it's a story of the Babylonian Empire, among other things. And, and one particular guy, the prophet, that was in that Babylonian Empire. Well, the king, one of the kings in the book that's chronicled, is a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And these were Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's word. He says, he, he goes up on his roof. Uh, like his patio, looks out over his kingdom, excuse me, looks out over his kingdom, and he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He had a wrong attitude toward wealth and resources. I built it for my glory, and it's very easy to believe that we are more because we have more. We need to be on our guard against it. And so the first thing that Paul instructs Timothy is to charge the rich in the congregation not to be haughty. Now, the second thing is also in verse 17. It's again the charge. Timothy, when you sit and you talk to your congregation, tell them not to set their hopes upon the uncertainty of riches. So pride is certainly a risk that those with this world's riches have to guard themselves against. But the second risk those with resources have to guard themselves against is setting our hopes on the resources, finding our security, finding our power, if you will, from the resources instead of looking unto the Lord. There's a reason why the Bible calls riches uncertain, because they are, right? You can have it today and it can be gone tomorrow. Riches are uncertain. And because they are, then, rather than placing our trust, and it happens almost naturally. Again, if you have the resources in the bank, then I don't have to cry out to God anymore, and I don't have to look out to others anymore. It just sort of naturally begins to happen. Rather than placing our trust in them, we are reminded of our need uh, to keep ourselves from doing so. The Christian's trust should never be in our temporal possessions even if we have a lot of them. Our trust should always be in God. He is the one that is to be our peace. He's the one that's to be our security. He's the one that's to be our rest. He's the one that's to be our comfort. And look at each one of those, peace, security, rest, and comfort. You can buy those, at least temporarily. And if you have a lot of resources, you don't need to look to God, but you need to be careful that you are looking to God. Are you with me? I quoted Nebuchadnezzar a moment ago. Again, he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's what he said in chapter 4. This is what God said to him in chapter 2. He says, You, O king, the king, Daniel speaking, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, he was clearly told that the God of heaven had given him the kingdom, had given him the power, had given him the might, had given him the glory. And yet two chapters later, and it seems like he bought into that in chapter 2, but two chapters later, no, this is my kingdom that I have built. For my glory. He allowed himself to believe that the kingdom that he had built was for his glory. 
how subtly riches can deceive us. And so look, we need to be on our guard because we have money here in America. We need to be really on our guard that we're not led astray by our resources. Paul talks about the uncertainty of riches. He says, he writes, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's a reminder to us that it all comes from him. Why were you born where you were born? Why were you born when you were born? Did you have any control of that? Not at all. But the fact that you were born here in the United States in this particular point in time, and I know some people weren't, but you get the point. The fact that you were born in this place at this time in the history of the world is part of why you have riches. Who gave you the ability to know and understand certain things so that you could get a job and make riches? Well, that comes from God. Who created or allowed for the creation of those opportunities that led to your success? The answer is God. In each case, it's God. And we need to, as Christians, ever be mindful of that reality. We can't forget it. Rather than trusting in riches, Paul goes on there and he says that believers are to fix their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so those who are rich in this present age, don't be haughty and be careful not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now the third admonition is found in verse 18. He says they are, in so many words, they are to use their resources to do good. Verse 18 says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Again, I, I said earlier, the Bible used that term stewards or managers. We are managers of the resources that God has entrusted into our care. And as managers, we understand that we will one day have to give an account. I gave you all this stuff, the Lord's going to say, so to speak, and what did you do with it? I'd like you to give me an account. Well, that's what the Bible teaches is going to occur. So Timothy is to instruct those in his congregation he serves that, that have resources, that they're to be rich in good works, that they're to be generous, and that they're to be ready to share. So notice God sees it as a responsibility of those with resources to meet the needs of those without resources. You see that there? It's not out of the kindness of your heart or, or whatever. You know, I just really felt I should do this. God sees it as your responsibility to do this. Now, so wealth is not a sin, but it is a responsibility. And how remarkable when you think about it that God has designed things so that many times, and maybe even more times than not, that he's going to use you or me, or us, to be the answer to another person's prayers. And so when another person is crying out, God, I just need you to come through, I need you to help, I need you to provide, uh, you know, I need food, whatever it might be, and you're the one, God doesn't send it down from heaven, man, I guess he did in the Old Testament, but, right, am I right? He uses us. And so God then lays it on your heart to go and meet the needs of that other person. You have become the answer to their prayers. What an incredible privilege and responsibility that is. Those of us with resources are to be a channel through which the provision of God flows to those in need. We are to be givers. And not just givers, because we all know people that can 
give with an attitude and bad attitude and so on. But we are to be generous givers, he says, and we are to be givers that are ready to share. One of the best ways you can protect your heart from becoming greedy and selfish is to give generously of your resources to meet the needs of others. It's one of the best ways you can protect yourself because it's very satisfying to see the way in which God can use you to be a blessing to others for his glory and in his name. Right? Would you agree? Paul says that our giving should be done generously. He says, he says ready to share. That means eagerly. Okay, here. You know, kind of thing. That's not what he's talking about. He says that we should be ready to share. And I understand, look, there's wisdom and, you know, how do I know if my giving is actually going to hurt this particular person because they're going to use it for wrong. I understand there's all of that that has to be factored into these things here. But at the very least, I hope our heart attitudes are such that we're like, Lord, if you direct me, I want to be ready to, to be used by you. He says they should be rich in good works. The idea there is abounding in them, using your resources to abound in good works. So if God blesses you with wealth, make it your goal to become the most generous, magnanimous person you possibly can become. And the reason, because that honors God, it blesses others, and just as important, it protects you from greed. And from covetousness. So Paul goes on in verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He talks about treasures in heaven. Like Paul, Jesus spoke of treasures in heaven on two occasions, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then in uh, Luke chapter 18, when he was talking to, that's that famous story there of the, the rich young ruler that Jesus spoke with. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. So in both instances there, Jesus talks about this idea of treasures in heaven. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And again, they're not talking about buying your way into heaven. And we know that because that would contradict the clear teaching of Scripture everywhere else, which talks about the only way we can get into heaven is because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the faith that we place in his work as the forgiveness of our sins. But So you can't buy your way into heaven. But again, as I said in the beginning, there are rewards in heaven for the lives that we live here on the earth. Again, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Eternal dividends, if you will, that will come as a result of how we use our resources here on this side of heaven that we'll enjoy on that side of heaven. This is what Paul has in mind here when he says storing up treasures for themselves. I liked a lot the way John Phillips said this. He said, happy is the rich person who breaks the bondage of materialism imposed by his wealth and sees beyond time to eternity and beyond earthly riches to eternal rewards. Happy, blessed is such a person. So again, why does God call us to give? It honors God, it blesses others, and it protects you. And it's that last idea that Paul touches on in verse 19, 
where he says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Another version says it, that they may take hold of the life that is life indeed. And that's God's desire for us. You know, we, we get trapped here on this earth and we're, we're looking toward comforts and resources and money and cars and trips and homes and all that kind of stuff. And we get sucked into that snare and unfortunately, it can crowd out our, our heavenly relationship with God and our heavenly home. Somebody said this, these hands are not big enough to lay hold of both the world, this world, and the next world. And so since we can only truly take hold of one, one or the other, pick one, since we can only truly take hold of one, then we should take hold of the one that lasts forever, and that's heaven. And so you can chase after all this world has to offer. You can chase after money and cars and houses and experience, experiences. But when many of us that maybe are a little bit older have come to know, even when we inquire some or even all of those things, we still find within that there remains a longing for something more. And so the experience was great, but and you've been there. You're on vacation and you're planning your next vacation. Right? Or you got this new thing in your house, oh, great, you know, this room here is perfect, now let's worry about that room. Or this car is okay, but I want a better car, or whatever it might be. And so it's not that we're not happy, or that we didn't enjoy the experience we had, it's just that it leaves us in this state where there's a sense that there has to be something more that we then begin to uh, pursue. We're just not completely fulfilled. True happiness and true fulfillment come when we find ourselves using what God has committed to our trust, that we might be a blessing to others. So if you really want to be happy, eagerly use what God has given you in order that others might be blessed. And ask God to guide you. God, direct me. And if I'm stingy, Lord, would you change me? Would you work in me? Be ready to give. Be willing to do so when the opportunity comes. Amen? I'm going to go to the final paragraph. We're not done, Joe. Verse 20, poor Joe, you sat in the front, that was your fault. <laughs> oh, Timothy, he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That's Paul's final words. And his final exhortation to Timothy, remember, this is a pastoral epistle. Paul has been Timothy's pastor for 30-some years here. Paul's now sending Timothy to go do the work. Paul's not able to do it. And Paul also knows he's not going to be around much longer. He's only, we know that he only has about five more years. He obviously didn't know that. But he knows that his time is coming to an end here. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy. He'll write another one to him, 2 Timothy. He writes another one to a fellow by the name of Titus. And he says here now in his instructions, Timothy, as a pastor as a Christian ultimately, but as the pastor that's going there to Ephesus, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Now, specifically, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. More generally, it's the word of God that Paul taught Timothy, and Timothy was now supposed to share with others. Here's how Paul worded it in the next book that he's going to write to Timothy, which we'll look at shortly. 
He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So entrust to others, guard the deposit that was given to you. So Jesus had entrusted it to Paul and the other disciples. Paul had entrusted it to Timothy. Timothy was now going to entrust it to some other guys. And ultimately, it comes down to you and I. And now we are to guard the deposit that has been passed down onto us. The church today is part of that legacy of the word of God that has gone forth and been preserved. The legacy of truth from those that have come before us. And so this instruction then to Timothy is an instruction then to you and I. We are to guard the truth. And we are to pass it on unadulterated to those that are going to come after us that will then pass it on to the next generation that comes after them. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Paul goes on, he says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Again, that recurring theme in this book is false teachers. And so in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul talked about vain discussions and those who make these confident assertions, you may recall he talked about that, that's part of these irreverent babblings that he's referencing again here in chapter 6. Paul, in chapter 1, verse 10, he talked about those ideas that were contrary to the sound doctrine that Paul had presented to them. That's part of what Paul's talking about here now in chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, in chapter 4, verse 7, he said, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. That's part of what Paul is talking about. So he's coming back to that theme here. The false teachers that were making their way into the church of Ephesus and had made their way into church of Ephesus were teaching a different doctrine that did not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul previously told Timothy, don't follow their lead, Timothy. Timothy was doing great in his walk with the Lord and serving the Lord. And Paul says, don't get sidetracked. Don't swerve off, Timothy. Keep your eyes on where your eyes should be. So here now, Paul's final exhortation, exhortation to Timothy, avoid such irreverent babble and contradictions. Avoid them altogether. Because Paul knows where such false teaching is going to lead the church and Timothy. He tells us in verse 21, he says, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's a word that he's used elsewhere in this book. And you may recall, it's a swerving away from the established path, and it's a swerving away to a path that leads nowhere. Maybe you've been in the woods, you walk through the woods, you think you found a path, and it's not a path at all. And you end up and you're staring at sticker bushes or whatever, and you've got to backtrack all the way out. That's what some of these men have done. They left the established path. They swerved off to a place that went nowhere. Earlier in the book, he mentioned two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, probably elders there in the church uh, of Ephesus. And he says that those men had shipwrecked their faith or they swerved off of the path. And it's what is shipwrecking many men and women of the faith even to today is when they get away from the scripture 
and they get through experiences or they get away from the scripture and they get to human wisdom or they get away from the scripture and they go after anything but the scripture. And it's no wonder that they end up on some path that leads to nowhere. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says, avoid these things. Paul said a very similar thing to a whole church. That's what he said to Timothy, to a whole church. In the book of Romans, he said this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. So he told Timothy, he told a whole church. Obviously, that applies to us as well. There's a temptation to get sidetracked for Timothy here, and maybe for you and I, and spending all of our time fighting the false teachings. There's a temptation to do that. Paul's word to Timothy and to us is that you don't have to fight them, just avoid them. Don't go near it, don't get involved with it, stay away from it. His plain exhortation in his next book, 2 Timothy, is going to be this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, he tells him. I charge you, Timothy, avoid the false teachings. Preach the word. That word avoid that Paul uses, it means to turn away from. So it's not that he doesn't notice it. He sees it. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I'm aware of it. But he turns away from it. Now let's get back to the word is what he does here. That's Paul's instructions to Timothy. Don't engage it. It's only going to cause you to turn away from the main thing. Preach the word. Dwight Moody, he said this, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's the word of God. And if Timothy continued to do that, he and the people that he was called to lead were going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine if we stay with the word of God. I remember when I was a young believer, I thought, I don't think I'm going to make it to heaven. I just want to sin, you know, and I, you know, whatever. And I don't think I'm going to make it. You're going to be fine. Stick in the word, stay in the word, apply the word, and you'll be fine. But what if I go off to this college and what if they lead me astray? You're going to be fine. Just stay in the word and you'll be fine. Here's Timothy, who was, we know he was like, he was timid. He talked about his timidity. He was, seemed intimidated by others. He had sort of this uh, demeanor where he would give in to others, and Paul told him not to do so. And now he's going to one of the most, probably one of the most powerful churches in the world at that time because the city was so influential and so on, and he's going to that particular place, and he's going to be put in charge? Paul, I'm 25 years old. I'm 30 years old. I don't know. There's people here that have been Christians for so much longer. I don't know what I'm doing here, Paul. I don't think I can do this. You're going to be fine, Timothy. You're going to be fine. And so Paul ends with a goodbye, really. He ends, and he says these last words. He says, grace be with you. Isn't that sweet? It is, if, if you don't notice. Sometimes you just read through that quickly. Like, oh, I'm done. Thank goodness. Think about it. Don't, don't forget to think about this idea. Paul began the book with the word Grace. It was actually the second verse of the book, but he said, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And now he brings the book to a close, and he says, grace be with you. 
So Paul's, you know, he's wrapping it all up, and he thinks of the most beautiful word that he can think of here to wrap it all up, and that's the word grace. Paul's coming to the end of his days. He's looking back over his time. He's reminding himself, himself of what has profoundly impacted his heart, and that is it's the grace of God that causes us to stand. A lot of times we think of the grace of God as that which brings us to faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. A lot of times we think of the grace of God as what got us started as Christians. The grace of God is something we need to be dependent upon every single step of the way in our walks with Jesus Christ. And Paul had come to understand that and rest in that, and he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, may God's grace be with you. How's Timothy going to be a successful minister in the city of Ephesus? The grace of God. God's grace will see you through, Timothy. Preach the word, and you'll be fine. And the same thing applies to you and I. So may the grace of God be with each one of you as you run your race with Jesus Christ. I love God's grace. I'm so thankful for it. And I know you are too. Let's pray together. Father, we are, our hearts are enlarged by the reality of your goodness toward us, your grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve your loving kindness and support and presence in our lives on a daily basis. And yet, in your grace, you love to show it. And you're ever present. And you minister to our needs and you draw us to yourself. And so, Lord, we rest in that reality. We understand we're not perfect, and we fall short even of our own standards, let alone yours. But you promise us in your word, for those of us that are in Christ, that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful, you're just, you'll cleanse us from unrighteousness. You'll brush us off, and you'll send us back out to start running our race again. And we delight in that reality. We thank you for this book of 1 Timothy. We thank you for uh, him and his calling. We thank you for the place that Paul played in his life. And we thank you that we got to peek in on this, this letter of instruction to him that we might apply it to us as well. We thank you for the gift of the word of God. You're good to us, Lord Jesus. We lift this prayer up in your name. Amen.